0: Welcome back to our second part of Strengthening Recovery Through Strengthening Marriage, Healing from Pornography Addiction. I'm Jeff Stewart, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, along with my colleague, Dr. Kevin Skinner, also a Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And we are uh, going to be talking today about CPR, uh, marital CPR, for relationships and marriages that are affected by pornography addiction, what to do in the early stages uh, when this is discovered, when it comes out. And as we said before in our previous series, uh, Dr. Skinner and myself are experts who work with uh, pornography addiction and working with couples especially on a regular basis, trying to help them deal with the effects of this and walking them toward uh, healthy recovery and long-lasting intimacy.
1: You know, and one of the things that we're, I'm excited to talk about today, Jeff, is this. When we have couples who first come to us, I want to get this information to them before they actually set up the appointment. And the reason why is because as soon as you discover your partner's involvement in pornography... Whether you've known about it for a long time or even just discovered it, boy, there are significant changes that happen to to both of you, to the couple.
0: Right, and it seems like every minute counts. You know, it's, it's so shocking and traumatizing that it almost seems like time stops. And so couples literally go into crisis, and there's an urgency with it. And so couples need information on what to do right when it happens.
1: And, and really, so our first goal is to almost normalize this process. Here's typically how couples make this through it. And with this information, our goal is to help you make it through this process in as healthy of a way. And I notice I didn't say time there, a healthy way, because many times people say, we just want to get over this. Right. I've just discovered I don't want to deal with this pain anymore.
0: Right. I, I look at this kind of a thing, you know, what happens when you start to hear a funny noise in the engine of your car when you're driving down the interstate, and you got to pull the car over. You can't just push the gas and keep going and hoping it'll go away. So our goal here today is to help couples know how to pull over, and what to start doing so that they they can minimize the damage. Um, unfortunately, because of how reactive this is and how damaging it is uh, to, to people, um, oftentimes couples inadvertently and understandably do things that make it worse. And so our goal here. Is to provide education and understanding on how to prevent that.
1: You know, and it, really, what we're saying is, we're going to talk about how to manage some of these expectations because, you know, it's kind of like uh, if you've ever seen a top. You know, you pull a top and it goes really well for a period of time, and, and you know, maybe that's what the first part of the marriage is, and you don't really know about the pornography. And all of a sudden, something uh, you know, put you put a penny in that top, and that top goes off kilter, and it, 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 it's hard for it to stabilize and really our goal is to help you stabilize because as you said you really can create more damage if you if you aren't cu- careful and cautious especially in the beginning and just an example of that uh, what what the researchers are finding is that denial and blame are significant destroyers uh, of of trust in the relationship. And it also creates some of that trauma that we talked about in the first session. And denial and blame are statistically significant uh, contributors to the trauma. And so if a partner has been denying it all this time and all of a sudden it's discovered, well, that instantly creates this, this internal tension in their partner saying, now, what else have they lied to me about? and the trust factor has been destroyed and so we really want to establish a, a kind of a holding pattern to help this couple through those, such times as that
0: right it's like setting up a perimeter around a uh, crime scene or a uh, you know a, a natural disaster where you want to contain this as much as possible and you know not let things in or out that are going to make things worse and so we want we want couples to understand what that parameter and a uh, perimeter uh, rather is going to look like
1: so, so let's ask the question what what would be a normal part of this process uh, let's say someone has this question and the question is I've just discovered my partner's involved in pornography what in the world should I do
0: that's right well, maybe it might be helpful with that question to, to back up just one step and say, what, what are some of the typical ways that this comes out? Because I think sometimes that can help frame the discussion a little, a little bit. Uh, uh, what I have found, and, and I'm sure you have as well, that in most cases, it's discovered. Um, if you're listening to this and you are struggling with pornography addiction or wonder if you have a problem with it, I, I, I can't emphasize enough you can do a lot to improve the situation by coming forward with it on your own. And and that will minimize the most damage. As hard as that will be, what it does is it gets out of the denial and it gets out of the blame, which you talked about being so destructive. And so what ends up happening is that if you come forward with the information, it sets a precedent, it sets in motion the message that I am going to be open and honest with you and i'm willing to get better and i want to get better when someone is discovered that message is so hard to pick up on
1: the secret behind it says well i don't know what else you've lied to me about how far has it gone where has it, i mean how much have you done is it just pornography or are you starting to act out in other ways and that's the question that they often have where where, where have you been how much have you been involved and if a person who is trapped in this can actually start that discussion as hard as it is, you're absolutely right. You're going to have more capacity to f- develop the trust in a more rapid fashion. Because if you discover, if your partner discovers it, then they're going to be asking questions. Now, is this yours? And if you've been denying it for weeks or months, and I, I'll tell you what, some of the most, dare I say, hurt, angry women that I've met with, well, he denied it for years. And now I have enough um, research from what my studies show that when a partner has denied it, their trauma levels are so high because I really believe it's because what they thought was real isn't there. It's a facade, so they don't know where to what, who to trust and what to trust.
0: It's the same kind of trauma we saw uh, in the Vietnam War where this new kind of warfare, you didn't know who the enemy was. Mm-hmm. You never knew if your back was safe or not. It, it, you were more afraid of what you couldn't see than what you could see. And so that's exactly how a lot of these partners feel when they discover the pornography use, um, especially if he lies about it, if he continues to deny it and blame her, then it just creates an ongoing pattern of mistrust, paranoia, suspicion, and keeps the partner in a state of trauma, which prevents her from opening up and seeing that he is serious about changing. And so if you have... Uh, information right now that your partner doesn't have about your use and struggles and so on, um, open up about it. Go talk about it. Talk to someone. Start, start the process. Take initiative. Set that precedent. That'll make a big difference. And in terms of reviving a marriage, and your marriage will need help when you talk about it. It's not that your partner is going to be thrilled to hear this initially, but make no mistake, it will minimize the impact. And, and let's talk specifically
1: I, – I would like to role-play this for a second, Jeff, because I think this is great. a critical part. Critical part. Um, if you're caught in this, what would you say to your spouse? And many times people say, I don't even dare do that. I don't know how to do that. I'm scared to do that. Well, here's, here's what I would suggest. Take a, a personal inventory and identify when you first got involved with pornography. And I would literally, I'd go back and I'd tell the whole story. I wouldn't, I wouldn't hide that part of it. Because if you come and say, I'm looking at pornography today, that's, that's, that's today. That's, that's a picture in, in your life frame. It's the tip of the iceberg. Right. And, and so if you were exposed at age 11, as an example, and it was a problem, you periodically viewed it during your teenage years, in communicating that with your wife, here, here's a kind of a sample of what I might say to, to a wife in self-disclosing. And it would go something like this. Um, sweetheart, one of the most difficult things that I'm going to do um, maybe in life is to talk with you about something I've been struggling with. And I'm sharing this with you because I I have had a secret for so long and I can't deal with it anymore. I need to talk about this. And at that point, she probably already knows. Right? I haven't even said anything. That's but the, right. But then I would say... At age eleven, I was exposed to pornography, and during my teen years, uh, there was some continual exposure. At, at a certain age, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, it, it escalated to the point where it was quite frequent. And then I, I worked through some things and I it was I distanced myself, but I should have been more open with you. And I need you to know that I'm still struggling to not view pornography, and I'm telling you this because I really want to get help and I want to overcome this, and I am embarrassed because of my actions and I don't want to live with my secret anymore. And, I, and that's a starting point.
0: I think that's wonderful. And I, I think, you know, keeping it short and simple like that and very clear and taking full accountability and responsibility for it um, is the most important thing. You know, and, and as you say that, I just want to say the opposite of that.
1: And, I, and, and here's what the women are saying. Just Here's what they're saying. My partner says that our relationship problems were because of my personal issues or background. Fifty-four percent of the women said half the time or more their partner's blaming them because uh, this is because of your past. Or my partner blames me for his or her sexual conduct. Forty-three percent half the time or more are being blamed because of that. Uh, you, other one, in our relationship, my partner has taken responsibility for his sexual behaviors. Less than 55% of the people, they, they aren't taking responsibility. So the research shows that this is a really hard thing for a, a man to do in this situation, to take responsibility and, and, and to take accountability. So in the blaming and shifting of that blame, it really puts this relationship at, at, at a risk, the moment you start taking responsibility and stop blaming and stop denying the behavior it's going to build that trust and really start that foundation so i would say if we're going to really start to stabilize things out of the gate if you're if even if you're caught own it but identify your history don't you don't have to be afraid of it. You've been you've been ashamed of it all this time. You ha- haven't talked with anybody. Now's the time to let that shame go. Openly talk about it. And the research shows that when you are less inhibited, you're actually going to feel more physically stronger. Your immune system will go up. And if you want any, uh, the research behind that, Dr. James Penbaker has phenomenal research on opening up. In fact, he has a book called "Opening Up," and in that book, he talks about the power of disclosure, of, of letting these secrets glow go,
0: and when you open up, your immune system goes up and your depression goes down. Right? And, and uh, you know, organized religion and other spiritual practices for years have understood this long before the research caught up with it, which is opening up, disclosing confession, mm-hmm. as it's called in many circles, mm-hmm. is, is a powerful source of healing. And, uh, and, and you're right. And, and one thing that I find with a lot of, um, again, men, thats mostly what we work with. Um, I think I'm seeing more women come through now, but uh, just for the purposes of simplicity, we'll say men. Um, one thing I'm seeing a lot is that if a guy comes to me first and hasn't told his wife – um, sometimes it can be helpful for him to spend some time talking about it with somebody he trusts or feels safe with mm-hmm. because he, a lot of the times he's keeping it from his wife because that's his most important relationship. And he's worried about losing her. He's worried about damaging this, this sacred and intimate bond with his wife and he knows what it's going to do to her. That's why he hasn't told her. And so what's important is for him to be able to figure out his story, figure out what accountability looks like so that he cannot go in and blame her and do more damage. So, If you have someone you can talk to, um, a a clergy, ecclesiastical leader, a friend, a parent, a trusted confidant, you want to pick someone that will encourage you to turn to your marriage, that will encourage you to turn to your partner and open up about it. But it can be a good practice run. And role-playing that would be a very important point. Because
1: if you just come out of it in, in the heat of the battle and you're not prepared, you can say and do things that may be more damaging to the relationship, like blaming them. You know, we had sexual problems, and because you you weren't available, I turned to pornography. Boy, that is the yeah. blame part that just contributes to it. They might not remember anything else you say other than the blame. There'll be cleanup from that longer than you can even imagine. So if we can prevent it, the heat of the battle. Now, if it's happened in the heat of the battle and those things have been said, one of the best strategies that you can take is to become accountable and owning your your behavior that's right.
0: That's right. So, you know, so, so you, you really have a choice. I mean, some of you listening to this, it, it, you may have been discovered, and it's too late for you to come out. But in some ways, it's not too late. It may be too late to be initially to come out with with the information. But the good news is, is that you can still take accountability for coming to your partner and telling her the whole story. You still have the option of coming to her and opening up about how you're doing on a regular basis, and so those things are available and are in within your control today. And I can even let's
1: even a quick role play with that, or how I would word that. Uh, you know, when you discovered this, my initial response was to defend myself. So I, I, I was, I denied it, and I was really wrong. I have thought a lot about what's happened, and I'm actually grateful that I can. I, I'm now. It's out in the open. And I know that may be harder on you because I was involved. And I know it's not hard for you to hear, but I am grateful now that that happened because I want to get over this. The The language there, it can be so powerful in owning it. And, he said, and then if he says something like, let me tell you a little bit about my history with this. And, and again, I believe exploring that history, it can be very helpful for the wife. And the reason why I believe that is because then she knows the whole story. Because oftentimes what happens here is the women extrapolate and believe it's sometimes even worse than it really is. And their mind will often, where does it end? And that's one of the things I've consistently seen with some of the women. They don't know where it ends. And so they don't, you know, did you do this? And did you
0: do this? And if you're not talking about that, they may be thinking it. Right. This is not a time for being vague or evasive. This is a time to be transparent, authentic, open, which... You know, is not going to feel very natural for lots of reasons, uh, and, and there's a lot of complicated reasons this may happen that we're not going to get into today, like family dynamics and other personality factors and things that play into this. Why you may or may not open up about your, you know, private information. But the critical thing is, is that when you take accountability for things that affect you and your partner in this commitment that you've made in this relationship, things will calm down. It soothes her fear. Her fear is that she's going to lose you. Is that you're not there for her? You've turned her back. You've turned your back on her, and so when you face her and you come to her, there is a physiological shift, a change where you're facing her, you're opening up, you're turning to her. There's eye contact. You're holding her hand. You're you're, you're connecting, and that's very soothing. Um, and and it's really, in some ways, not hundred percent only about what you're saying. The act of being there and doing that sends a message of. You can be safe with me.
1: How many time have, times have you heard women say, I just wish you would talk with me about it? Right. I just wish you would All talk with me about it. That's I, right. That, I mean, I've almost always, I, I, there may be one or two occasions where it's so difficult for the women. Again, we'd have to work with her in a different way because many of the women, are, I'm just hearing them beg for more information.
0: And this gets easier for men in recovery as they go along, because early on, we know that the impact on the prefrontal cortex and on the emotional regulation and so on is blunted. I mean, people that struggle with this a lot of the times have difficulty feeling emotion or identifying their emotions and processing emotions. And so for them to be emotionally open and honest and talk and identify the feelings and so on, that's that's a recovery behavior that will take some time.
1: You know, and I really think it's important here to emphasize that's the benefit of a group. I mean, you do group educational classes. You do group classes. And, and in that process, you likely see them developing emotional skills to talk about these hard things in a very open way with people who are struggling
0: with similar issues. That's the power of the group. And that transfers to the marriage. And they're able to, to learn those and experience those kinds of things and connect that and, and bring it to their marriage. So the starting point then, we're, we're, we're going to manage expectations. What's normal?
1: Normal for her to be traumatized, Yes. uh, especially if she's discovered it. A way that we can prevent that is to not stay in denial and blame. And then uh, what are some of the other things that they're going to experience as this is first discovered?
0: Yeah, and on on the trauma piece, um, since you mentioned that, um, one thing that's important to remember – um, I'm a big fan of Peter Levine's work. He's done a lot of work with uh, somatic experiencing and trauma, and he wrote a fabulous book called Waking the Tiger. And in that, in that research that he's done in working with trauma, he talks about how trauma affects the body first, and then your thinking and emotions and stuff kind of filter out through that. But your body is the first thing that gets hijacked by this trauma. And, and by that, it's, it's it, you know you think of it from a survival standpoint, and if, uh, if, if, there's a, if there's a threat facing you, the body doesn't know the difference whether it's a physical threat or an emotional threat. The body thinks it's always a physical threat. And so what happens is the body starts to compensate for that. The blood rushes to the muscles, your adrenaline spikes, and your reflexes. Beca- you, know, you start to lose your capacity to think globally. You start to think very narrowly. And so a lot of partners, and even men, when they're caught, feel trauma they feel powerless they feel hopeless they feel overwhelmed and their bodies are having a reaction that is, there's a lot of numbing and so we have to be very clear about what's happening physiologically this is not a good time to be making decisions about the future of your relationship this is not a good time to be deciding how things are going to be long term this is a time to take care of your body this is a time to uh, to de-escalate to ground yourself And so a lot of the times it is so punishing physiologically uh, when this discovery happens or this disclosure that it's best to do it in short bursts, to not have these super long, huge, drawn-out conversations that are just so punishing and exhausting.
1: You know, as a critical part there, you're talking about that initial trauma. Sometimes, in that moment, is where couples really learn about each other because they're so open they the open disclosure opens up a whole plethora of discussion items. Like we've had marital problems, and they really start to think, and so the mind is just humming along. It's really anxious, and unfortunately, what that creates is an increased anxiety. And so, as many couples do when they're elevated, they don't know how to resolve it. They don't know how to talk through it. And so sometimes it will shut the man down because he feels it's too intense for him. And so his initial response is, I've got to get out of here. I've got to escape from this. When, you know, the typical fight or flight, if, if, if the female has just discovered this or the male, either version of that has just discovered the partner's involvement, the initial response is elevated inside of that partner, but it can, ironically, almost be a release for the person who was discovered. And so one of the other research findings can be that he may be feeling good. I've now talked about this, and I'm feeling relief from it. Well, well why is she so angry? Boy, and that can be very problematic because the the research shows that when you do finally let this, I don't know, this damned up pent emotion out and the damn breaks— it can actually be very relieving for him, soothing. That's right, and and so that could even upset her more because why are you so calm with this? Why are you know why why is he not feeling what she is? Well, because he's actually getting some relief from his, the guilt and the shame, and she's feeling like she was hit by that water that's coming from that dam, and she's just tumbling all over the place, thinking what does this mean? What happens? And how do I respond? And all of these emotions, and so the gift that you give to your spouse in that situation if you're the person involved is you get to the opportunity to help her understand her emotions and listen to the frustration to the anger to the hurt and and the gift that you really would give is slowing down enough to say i tr- i created this and my behaviors my inappropriate behaviors i need to i need to listen to her and there's a time for that but that's a critical part of of recognizing if she's coming at you with anger if you flee and you get out of there you're going to be exacerbating the problem. And sometimes that anger is intense and it's very difficult. But if you'll sit through it, you'll be able to really understand what she's feeling and experiencing.
0: Yeah, and I think the metaphor of the of the broken dam works beautifully because the person who's had the secret behaviors in the secret life has known that there's been that body of water there the whole time. And the partner never knew because it was, it was walled off. And so even though they, you know, of course we talked about in the last series, but there's feeling distance and disconnection and so on. They don't necessarily know exactly the specifics of it. When that water breaks out, when that secret comes tumbling out, whether it's disclosed or discovered, to to uh, shame or um, criticize or judge your partner for her reaction, which will oftentimes be a very strong reaction of withdrawal and quiet and silence and pulling back, or in many cases, rage and anger and yelling and uh, and so on. It, it, would be, it would be as helpful to criticize her as it would be to criticize um, a, a flood victim who's swirling through the tumbling water looking for a lifeline, and uh, it's not useful. And so, like you said, staying there, holding out a steady hand, and just saying, I'm here, I've hurt you, I'm sorry, I don't want to do this, I want to talk to you about it, I want to get better, those accountability statements and staying there in the face of all that, all that uh, emotion and disconnection and struggle is actually one of the most helpful things you can do for your partner.
1: You know, and I want to just emphasize this. Uh, I mean, what, are, what is really happening? And this is all based upon our survey with 400 women. Uh, here, here's a couple of questions to illustrate this. After discovering my partner's sexual behaviors, I find that I'm increasingly angry in response to my partner. 85% said about half the time.
0: And I think the key word there is increasingly because what I see a lot of the times is that um, the, the partner will have a very authentic reaction, which sometimes is anger and and, a, and uh, sadness, tearfulness, uh, sometimes just shock and numbing, and they just sit there. They don't know what to say. And then that increasingly part starts to happen, which is um, I sit on it for a couple of days, a couple hours, and I'm going to come back, and I'm starting to escalate. Now, now I really want to tell you how I feel, and that's when a lot of guys are like. What's going on? We just talked about this. Yeah, why do you have to keep bringing this up? Yeah, why were you not this angry yesterday? And and the the fact is, is that that increasingly part is so critical to understand. And that increasingly thing, by the way, Kevin, as you know, that can last months. It's not something that's going to go away in a day or two, and
1: that's what I want to help these couples understand. This process isn't something that we're going to give you a pill with, and it's going to be over.
0: in our In our three phase LifeStar program that we run, um, you know, it's within the fourth, fifth, sixth month of recovery process that a lot of our partners that are recovering um, that's when they really start to get in touch deeply with some of these emotions. It's the first time that they're really able to grieve and deal with the loss and the sadness and the emotion from this. And it takes time for them to organize these feelings.
1: You know, and I think it's helpful to help both individuals in this process understand, almost normalize it. It's going to take some time. And if the, her emotions are elevated, she's increasingly irritated. The The best thing you'll do for that is understand the emotion. Yeah. It, 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 you know what? For the first time in life, you may actually get to see emotion and not have to flee from it and feel, you know, you may feel guilt associated with it. I created this pain inside of her, but the fact that you can own that, I, I contributed to this and there's a, there's a beautiful concept called mindfulness. And I I love how mindfulness works in a situation like this, where I can sit in this environment and I'm mindful of it. I'm not judging it. I'm just sitting back and observing what's going on in the relationship. And that's a very powerful tool that I found to be effective with the men in, that I've worked with in this situation. Because he's feeling so much guilt, he wants to flee. But that's a typical fight or flight response. As humans, we have the capacity to sit in an environment and observe it rather than make fast judgment
0: on it. I think the Buddhists call that witnessing. mm mm-hmm. Right, it's yeah. it's an observing, it's a witnessing, it's noticing just what's going on without having to do anything about it. You don't have to move toward it, you don't have to move away from it. It just it just is there, and you can stay there with it. and And, and individuals who are coming out of hiding and secrecy, and they're sitting with a reactive partner, can do so much to deescalate and soothe the situation by just being present I, I being present rather. I, I like Dorothy Beckvar's. Uh, a phrase with this. She calls it the ministry of presence. I think it's a beautiful yeah, phrase. Yeah. You can do so much to minister and to support and help this person across me who's just now been so wounded by just being there for you. And, and now let's look at it
1: from the other perspective. If you've just discovered your partner and you're finding yourself escalated, those emotions are maybe foreign to you. You may not be comfortable with them, and you may feel guilt yourself because you have them. That you're not even acting like yourself. Yeah, and and you say, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I don't feel the way I used to feel. I feel more anger. I'm more irritable. I'm not as good with the kids. And you're starting. You can look in the mirror and say, I I am losing it. And what I want to say to you is the same thing. You need a place to let this this internal dam that's built up inside of you now. A place to let that go. And there's some f- very powerful tools and resources for that. You know, you may be able to talk with your spouse about it, but he or she may not be able to take it all. And so you're going to need a safe place to be able to let those things go. And I have found a very powerful way of doing that is writing your thoughts and emotions associated with that experience. And there's a very powerful research piece by Dr. Penbaker that shows the power in writing. And he found that when individuals write about traumatic experiences, that initially, that writing, it pulls out the memory and it allows them to look at it for what it is, the thoughts and emotions with it. So it doesn't go into the memory bank with this powerful fear. It actually goes in there with a clear, more clear understanding. And his research has found that initially writing about it can actually activate the trauma. But over time, weeks and months, the trauma is reduced and people actually feel more or they feel healthier
0: yeah and I think that that's uh, such a critical point a lot of partners worry that um, what they write other people will see that their children will see it they don't want to put it in their journal next to their other experiences they they don't know what to do where to put this in a safe place my recommendation is just write find a place to start writing even if it's on the back of a napkin it doesn't matter start writing getting your thoughts you can figure out what to do with it later and it's, and i want to be very specific here the research shows writing about your thoughts and your
1: feelings or emotions that are associated with that experience because you can just write about the experience and and that will just recycle the thing. So dig deep into your emotions. How do I feel about this? What do I think about it? What does it mean? How do I, it, what, what emotions am I feeling? Get in touch with your emotions because if you'll do that, it won't reenter your long-term memory with the same intensity.
0: Yeah, and I think that this advice goes for both partners and individuals who struggle with the addiction. Absolutely. Both people experience a certain level of trauma um, you would think that the partner is the only one that gets traumatized, but my experience has been mm-hmm. is that the men get traumatized as well. If it's a guy that's struggling, because all of a sudden now he has just experienced a major attachment disruption, where his connection and his you know his ability to feel uh, close to somebody else has just been severely compromised, and he doesn't know what the future holds. And so writing is good for both. I, I don't know what you think about this, Kevin, um, but my my observation is is that writing with a pen or pencil and paper is so much more effective than just clicking things out on a keyboard
1: yes and the reason why i completely agree with that because it slows down the mind yes uh, when i type I, we are we are so programmed today that we go so fast that it doesn't allow us to slow down enough and there is a power in slowing down the mind uh, i don't know if you're familiar with the sympathetic and parasympathetic system in the, of the automatic nervous system but here's here's how that demonstrates itself in this situation The sympathetic system is the fight-or-flight response. And when when we're in stress, which many of these individuals are for extended periods of time, their body doesn't relax, which means that they stop eating and their digestive system shuts down. So many people, after experiencing this, they don't eat because they're not hungry because the stress inside of them is so high. And, and so when you stop eating, your digestive system goes down, your, your, your emotional system shuts down, which means that your mental health gets – you get more depressed, more anxious, more fearful. And so physiologically, your body is as if you are at war. And when you shut down that part of your body and you stop getting the serotonin, which actually helps you feel good, the endorphins, which relaxes you, when you aren't getting those chemicals physiologically, your body is not performing. You're going to be more angry. You're going to be more frustrated because your body's not performing the way it can. I mean, that's like putting diesel fuel in a, in an unleaded gas tank and expecting yourself to get somewhere. It's not working. So you start eating more or you stop eating altogether. And as a consequence to that, now you're trying to deal with incredibly difficult issues without the right fuel. And so riding... Slowing down the mind allows the parasympathetic system to relax so you digest your food, so you think more clearly. And if you will incorporate that into this healing process right now early on, eat well, get as much sleep as you can. And what I mean by that is you need to – that's going to be hard for many of these people just after discovery. But we're trying to get back into a healthy sleep pattern. And then we're also strongly encouraging exercise because that actually helps the body relax itself. So those are some specific – necessary things to do upon discovery is we've got to focus on trying to get the mind calmed down. And
0: that's for both of them. That's right. And the tendency, I think the natural reflex under these circumstances is to talk, 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 talk a ton. And while talking and openness and trying to, to solve things and figure things out and to connect is critical. And I certainly want couples doing that. That can be problematic though. If that's all you do. That's right. And so if you're staying up super late at night talking, you're not getting to bed. A lot of couples tell me, Oh, we stayed up for four or five hours, we you know, we got to bed at three in the morning and you know, we're just so tired, eventually that's gonna catch up with you. You're going to start struggling, and then you're going to start saying and doing things. And for guys that struggle with this, that could even put them at risk for slipping back into old addictive patterns and partners to start developing ways of coping that will not serve them long term. So, so in this process, out of the gate, we're trying to, as, as difficult
1: as it is, we're trying to say, let's slow down a little bit. And let's try to maintain some semblance of patterns that are effective for you. That includes getting to bed at a decent hour. That includes, I mean, many many times couples go into this hyper mode. I mean, they talk about everything for a week and they have this incredible experience where they think it's so good and wonderful. And then the dust settles. Mm -hmm. And now she starts asking the questions, well, did he tell me everything? And he starts getting back into this, well, now I've let it out. And there may be a period of time where he's relieved of the cravings for pornography, But it's still not completely gone. And so after a few days or a few weeks, that craving starts to come back because physiologically, there's addiction that's developed. And in that that interim, he may think, oh, this is wonderful. It's gone. And she may think, well, now the dust has settled. And then she's going to start asking these questions. And at that point, my experience has been that we've got to not only slow the couple down, but we've got to get into rituals and routines that have worked for them in a healthy way.
0: And if they haven't had healthy things, then they need to learn how to do those healthy things. That's right. And some, some couples find that they have to balance a combination of closeness and distance. And some partners need a lot of space. Um, I, I've known lots of situations where she's asked him to leave the bedroom and sleep on the couch or to go to a separate bedroom um, or even to move out for a time. And, and that's a way of, of trying to regulate that. My experience has been is don't fight that. This is a long-term play. And the most important thing right now is to create containment, grounding, and structure. And there's a lot of damage that can be done by trying to force or fight the process. And so a lot of the times, if he's open to accepting her influence, and he's working with her instead of against her, and taking her pain seriously, that can actually ultimately long-term create more closeness and connection. i found lots of couples that even though they may have been separated or maybe she doesn't want to sleep in the same room with him, uh, they may end up going on a walk together in the evenings. And maybe they don't say much, but there's still a sense of connectedness going on. And so you you really have to recognize that it's not just about creating this super intense closeness all the time or this super intense distance all the time. There's going to be an ebb and flow of that. And I think that's important. And I
1: want to just talk about a little bit of a, just a research uh, point here. Um, I avoid sexual contact with my partner since discovering his or her behavior. And about 80% rarely or occasionally, in other words, 17% said, we, I always do. So they completely pull away. More often than not, 39% uh, cumulative. And 55% of people avoid sexual contact. So I, in my experience, it's either a hit or miss on this one. It's, it's black or white. The sexual relationship changes. That's right. Either they become more sexual because she feels like she has to maybe compete, and so if she's more sexual, it can be better. Or the other side of this where she absolutely is uncomfortable, doesn't want to have sex. But I I haven't seen many couples stay in the same pattern sexually that they initially were. It either becomes more intense or it's something that doesn't occur at all.
0: Yes. Something always changes with it. I've never seen it not affect that. And so it's just important to be flexible with that right now. And And I found that some partners want to be sexual uh, for comfort, closeness, and connection. Some do it out of fear and anxiety, like you said. And sometimes they want nothing to do with it because they feel it's been compromised and, and contaminated by the addiction. and uh, And so it, it's important for men who are uh, coming out of hiding, again, whether they're discovered or, or they disclose it, to um, really follow their partner's lead on this. It's okay. This is Again, this is going to be a long-term thing, and um, it's not always going to look the exact same way, and so there has to be a high level of flexibility and patience with this, pro- this part of the process. All right. So what are some
1: of the other things that uh, couples can do to stabilize their marriage in this early
0: phase? I think, I think an important thing is to uh, reach out for help. And that can be in lots of different forms. Now, the tendency is to, uh, for a lot of couples, is, again, just like the sexual thing we were talking about, some couples say nothing to anybody and go into self-containment mode and seal off everybody. And uh, then there's the other couples that have, you know, just a hard time not talking about it with everybody who will listen. And and I believe that both versions are harmful. Mm -hmm. I believe that both extremes are not useful. Instead, what I recommend is that each person identify at least one person that is a friend of the relationship, that cares about both of them equally, and wants them to succeed, and that they open up to this person about their current situation, and that, that the, each partner is not in charge of choosing who that person is. It's certainly important to, to care and have influence and talk about it, but ultimately if she wants to talk to her sister and she feels like her sister is safe, she needs to talk to her sister and for him if he wants to talk to his parents and so the couple has to have an experience with reaching out talking and opening up again my preference is please make sure you pick someone that is a friend of the relationship
1: relationship friendly person i think that's such a critical point because if you don't have that then the advice and the information you're going to get is to leave the bum one sided or or i can't believe you're tolerating that now we say relationship friendly. You still may have, you still may need to go think about that if things are not changing. If the person, if your partner refuses to get help, refuses to do things. But in in our experience, and at least in my experience, most couples will really want to work through this. That's right, and it, yeah, and they, they need to know how. And if they have people who are giving them advice, will get out because many times in society, that's the advice is just get out. Well, that doesn't solve things. Because I asked the question in here why these women were staying in the relationship. And you know what the amazing result is? and I, and I, I think this is a very indicative part. Women are staying in the relationship because they generally love their partner. Of course they do. That's why they're so hurt by it. And, and, and you know, that may not be rocket science, but it's the facts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I asked the question, why are you staying in this relationship? Is it because, you know, do you genuinely love your partner? Or is it because of the children? Or is it because of finances? Well, one of the top reasons was I genuinely love my partner and I want it to work out.
0: If you're listening to this, um, this uh, this session here, as a loved one of someone who's been affected by this, the most helpful thing you can do is to say to that person, there is hope. Don't do anything dramatic right now. Let's just slow this thing down. Let's see what he does or what she does, and let's just stay with it. We're talking marathon here, not sprint. There's no finish line to cross right now. And so the critical thing is, is if you're going to be a friend of this relationship, you're going to recognize that, especially if this person's married, they have made a commitment to the other person, that may have been violated through secret behaviors, and you know infidelity or what the case may be, but that relationship can be repaired.
1: You know, and and they and they wanted to. I mean, here's here's another question that I asked in the survey. Uh, I genuinely want this relationship to work out. Seventy-five percent either strongly agreed or mostly agreed.
0: Right, and to ignore that and become one-sided about it is really not hearing what they want that they may not, may not be able to say in that moment.
1: And, and I think that if we as a friend care about the person, then we're going to say, I'm here to support you and I'm here to listen to you. I'm not making judgment. I'm just here to help you be, be a sounding board. And when you need, want some of my advice, I'd be more than willing to get it, but that's all it's really going to be.
0: Yeah. It, it,
1: I, don't, I don't expect that I'm going to be able to t- – I don't want to tell you what to do. I want to be your friend.
0: So reaching out to someone else is a critical part of this marital CPR. It will it will help revive, uh, it, you know, it will help stabilize. It will create some grounding and help them organize this fear and trauma, and it will create a sense of safety and connection that will help them better navigate the next few weeks. And, and let me add one other
1: part to this that I think is something that we have to address, and that is when I, I it's what I call conflicting messages. So I go to a counselor. I go to a religious leader. I go to a friend. I go to a parent. And if people are hearing multiple voices of how to respond, it adds to the confusion. That's right. And, and, and there's a warning with that because then you stop looking internally and saying, well, how do I feel about this? And I often tell couples and individuals, you've got to look inside first. This is going to be you. Because if you start looking outside of of how you should respond to this, and I'm not saying don't ask and don't get more data from other people and some of their thoughts, but at the end of the day, your instincts, your gut feelings, your impressions, you're the one who's in the relationship. You've got to slow down enough to ask yourself, how do I feel about this? And and that's why the power of writing and talking with people can be very helpful.
0: Yeah, and it's important that you do a personal inventory or check-in on a regular basis of how you're doing physically. How you're doing emotionally how you're doing spiritually and and notice and pay attention to what your body is telling you and so you know with this with this CPR uh, analogy we're using you know when somebody is is CPR it's obviously a life-saving intervention it's something that's happening because other things have shut down and so what we want people to recognize is that when the discovery is made your body is going to go through a series of changes And you're not going to feel like yourself. There's going to be a lot of numbing, shock, anger, withdrawal, checking out. And so you've got to take care of the body. Like you were saying earlier, you've got to make sure you're getting enough rest. You've got to make sure you're balancing that with healthy eating, exercise, connecting with other people socially, not only to talk about this – but to talk about other things, making sure that you're spending good quality time with your children, if you have children and with friends, connecting socially, you've got to strengthen your base. A lot of the times, those are the first things to go. You
1: know, uh, one of the analogies I take with this is a research done by Dr. Joseph Ledoux, who studied the emotional part of the brain, the amygdala, and... Uh, after nine eleven, he he sat back and he assessed what was happening to us as Americans. And he said, what's happened to us is we sat and we watched the television screen over and over and over again. We wa- We saw those planes fly into the Twin Towers. We saw it go into the Pentagon. We saw it go down in Pennsylvania. We saw all of these things. And what that creates, those images, is a sense of feeling of hopelessness and fear. It's what he called passive fear. And, and his research shows that when a person has passive fear, they feel hopeless and there's as if nothing that they can do. And when an individual lives in passive fear, they stop taking actions and they freeze. And he said many times in the research that he did, and he actually initiated his research with rats and studying what happens with fear in the rat's brain. And this is the part that I think is most intriguing. He said, I could, I could teach a rat by playing a tone to freeze because it would be shocked thereafter. So they would play a tone and the rat would freeze. And that's passive fear. And that's what happens in many of these couples. They get in this state of fear and they become so passive as if there's nothing that they can do. So he said, I gave the rat a, a, an alternative. I actually took them out. Uh, once I conditioned them to feel the fear from the tone, I put them in a brand new cage that if they moved, they would not be shocked. And he says the rat that actually moved to a different part of the cage ended up developing a different pathway in the brain. So instead of the fear-producing pathway of the brain, it produced a completely alternative route when it moved away from where it was going to be shocked. And he said this, and this is the quote that I absolutely love from him. He said, when we take action, when we move out of the fear, whatever that is, and we go and pursue a pleasurable activity that's healthy, pleasurable, healthy activity, we rewire the brain and we don't live in passive fear. And he called it the psychological equivalent of getting on with our lives. I love the term because passive fear is what we feel as if there's nothing we can do and i guarantee you that by taking some of the steps that we're talking about you're actually standing up and as he said instead of watching those planes fly into the twin towers we get off the couch we shut off the tv and we move on and we as a couple that's really what we're trying to teach you to do to
0: talk about it to get help
1: to ask for more assistance in this
0: process that's right and the reality is, is, like Dr. Martin Seligman found in his groundbreaking research on optimism, You know, his book Learned Optimism, um, and so on, with the learned helplessness and so on. What he found is that the most healthy people are the ones that believe they have options. And so when you believe you have options and you start moving towards something that's healthy... You're right. It does restructure the brain because trauma structures the brain, restructures it. Mm-hmm. So you've got to combat that with healthy movement. And there's so much you can do. Self-care is is critical during this time. And reaching out and connecting socially, the, the, for a lot of people, the last thing they want to do is tell somebody about this. But you've got to lean into that and trust that that actually is going to make things better. And then pacing yourselves as a couple and uh, and so on. And And then, of course... Reaching out and and uh, getting professional help is highly recommended. Uh, this is not something that most couples can be guided out just by themselves. And, yeah. and
1: now a point that I want to bring up here: a lot of our listeners, my guests, would be saying something. So I, if I do reach out to a friend or a parent or a loved one, what should I say? What what do I tell them? What do you recommend in situations like
0: that? Well, I think the I think the first thing to say is just talk about where they're at emotionally. And just say, I'm overwhelmed because, if it's a partner, I'm overwhelmed because I discovered or I, my partner told me that he's looking at pornography. And and just to start there and just to talk about how you're feeling, what your reaction is. The, the critical thing is just to start talking about it and, and to not try and find the perfect way to say it. And if you're somebody who's been caught or you've disclosed it and you're going to reach out, again, you're going to need practice telling your story and being able to say, I'm really struggling right now. My wife is really angry and I'm really hurting right now because I told her about some of my secret behaviors or I've been doing this, uh, I've been looking at pornography secretly and I've really hurt my wife or I've really hurt my partner. Again, I'm not really as convinced that saying it in the right way to these support systems is the critical thing. I think saying it and starting is the most important step. And the other part
1: of that is when we inhibit that, when when say for example a wife has found her husband involved with pornography, if she doesn't reach out, the inhibition of that emotion will pent up inside of her and she will the more it's pent up the the less healthy she feels she feels emotionally more distraught the fact that you're talking about it can actually help in the relieving of some of that built-up tension and the burden that is associated with that so i agree it's not necessarily that we know say exactly the same one thing but it's that we start talking about it and when we are talking about it i think it is critical that we are cautious that we don't stay in the same place. In other words, we tell a thousand people the same story and we never resolve it in our mind. We never look through, am I going to be okay because of this experience? Will I survive this? Will I make it through it? Those types of personal questions need to be asked. Because sometimes people think, I don't know if I'm ever going to make it through this. And they stay in that emotionally aroused state even in, in broadcasting it to the emergency broadcast system that they've developed. Mm-hmm. And that's the other side of that. When people go out there and they put it on the billboard for everyone to see, and I've actually seen people who've done that, and that is so destructive to the relationship because it adds the shame and the guilt to him beyond a point where he he feels like he can never recover from
0: it. Yeah, and I look at this as a like a spiral staircase, that you're going to pass by some of the same vantage points, um on your journey as you talk about this. You may talk about this this thing several different times, several different ways, but like a spiral staircase that's going up, your perspective each time you come around is going to look different. And you've got to make sure that you're you're connecting with your emotional feelings, that you're seeking new ways to understand this, getting educated, connecting with others that are dealing with the same experience and and really trying to to again increase your vantage point. And so you may come around and be saying some of the same things. But your perspective on it needs to be different every time you come around.
1: And let me give our listeners four or five questions that in this marital CPR session that they could be giving themselves. First question How can I heal from my experience? I would write about it, I would ponder on that question. How can I, what's it going to take for me to get through this? Those self evaluation questions, another self evaluation question What triggered my response? What, what is it? Why am I feeling so intense about this? Or what can I do to help my spouse? That's another question. What can I do to help her or him through this? And those type of self-reflective questions really get us thinking about solutions rather than living in the fear and the pain of it. So I really believe that as we start looking at what's it going to take to heal? How can I do this? And we authentically look at those questions. We're going to have a greater chance to facilitate the healing process.
0: And you might think of that second question as, what can I do so that things don't get worse? And you may not know how to do anything to improve the relationship directly, but make no mistake that you journaling, doing self-care, reaching out for support will absolutely indirectly and then ultimately directly improve your relationship that you're worried about. And that goes for both people.
1: You know, and the the exciting thing about this, as we talk about marital CPR, is that I, I personally have seen couples go through this, and they they make it. They, Absolutely, they really do. And I know that you have uh, in your groups and in, in your work you're doing, uh, you've seen lots of people make it through these difficult times.
0: Absolutely, and that's the message we want to send: is that just get started with it, open up about it, talk about it, do the self care, walk through it. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, "If you feel like you're going through hell, keep going." And we want people to know that it will not last forever. And they will discover, if they're both sincere and honestly working on this process, they will discover a relationship that looks very different from the one that um, preceded this whole thing. And so we don't want to sugarcoat or minimize or, or invalidate the pain of this because we're using the term CPR on purpose because it feels like life and death. It's so intense emotionally, physically and it is one of the one of the most painful things in terms of betrayal and 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 stuff that you can feel. And so we, we're sensitive to that and we want people to know that the first thing they can do um, have been outlined in this presentation. All right. Uh and my concluding
1: remarks on this would be would be this. When a couple goes through this and they're in that initial phase, the initial response is to become so emotionally aroused that it feels like your life is turned upside down. I love what Shondell Norton called it. It's like the apple cart has been turned over. I really like the analogy there. And 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 really what we're doing is we're asking you to together and, and maybe by selecting select friends to help you pick up the apples that have been dumped over on that cart. And, and to, together you begin talking through it and putting the apples up there together. And as in all situations like that, the apples are bruised. Mm-hmm. And it takes a while for us to, to take out the bruises so we can actually get back to uh,
0: eating good apples. Absolutely. Yeah. This this process is going to be something that requires a lot of sorting, organizing, and uh, and, it's, and it's a joint effort. And couples just need to know that it's absolutely worth getting started with it. If you happen to discover it and you are feeling disorganized and overwhelmed and traumatized, slow down and recognize that there are things you can start to do. And if your partner is unwilling to work with you on this, if you're alone and there's nothing you can do, then our next series is going to talk about individual and couples recovery, how to start structuring that. And so we're going to address that in the next series. Excellent.
1: So we want to thank you for joining us today, Dr. Kevin Skinner and Jeff Stewart.
0: Thank you.